Hello and welcome to Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And this is episode number 93, uh, which is, I just can't believe we're in yeah. the 90s. Um, and first part of today's podcast, we're going to be discussing a question posed by Simon. <laughs> Do we care what characters are called? Um, you sound so weary already. <laughs> <laughs> I will just say I suggested something better than this, which we've postponed for a, a later one. So if when this goes tits up, which I guarantee it will, then <laughs> I'm not taking any responsibility. <laughs> and then the second part, we are going to be talking about uh, two books by the same author, which Simon and I very much enjoy, uh, which is The Summer Book versus A Winter Book, um, both of whom are by Tove Janssen, who most people will probably know for the Moomins. Yes. So, Simon, first of all, how are you and what are you reading? Yes, I'm all right, thank you. I've got a uh, day off, which is nice. So we're recording at 10 in, the, 10 in the morning. We don't often record <gasps> in the morning. No. Um, it's half time for you, of course. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I am reading, Rachel, a mm. book that is 920 <gasps> pages long. Goodness how how out of character is that? Very out of character. I'm like, what's happened to you? I know. It's pandemic. <laughs> it's a book that I bought. Actually I, actually, I think I was given it as a review copy by Oxford University Press in 2008, maybe. Whoa. So, finally getting onto it. 13 years later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's Camilla by, by Fanny slash Francis Burney. Uh. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought, oh, so she's not, she's not 19th century, is she? It was 1796, I think it was published. So, yeah. is it just outside your happy period? I'm just having <laughs> flashbacks to my university module on the early novels. Ah. Pamela, Hen, uh, Tom, Tom Jones, Laura, uh, Tristan Shandy, all that kind of stuff. Is it epistolary? It is not, um, mm. unusually. Um, it is just novel form. So I read Evelina at university and really enjoyed it. But Evelina, whilst it felt quite long at the time, is about a third the length of this. Mm. Um, and I am enjoying this a lot. Uh, I'm enjoying the secondary characters a lot more. I'm about 250 pages in. There's a lot of very funny, ridiculous secondary characters, but the main, like Camilla herself and the man who she is evidently going to end up with, her um, cousin, Edgar, I think cousin, the family trees confuse me a bit, um, are both extremely virtuous uh, in quite a dull way. But uh, hopefully more of their flaws will be exposed as we go on. But from about page 150, it was very evident to to me and I would have thought to everyone in the book that Edgar and Camilla were in love with each other. We've had a few obstacles, but I'm not sure how we're going to sustain another 700 pages of, of obstacles. Um, yeah, I mean, that's how I felt about Pamela. I was just like, well, you know, when I got to the end, I was like, well, we, I worked this out from page number one. Why have I been here? But <laughs> Pamela's the same page. scene over and over again. It's over and over again. Um, and I just felt very sorry for all of my lecturers who specialised in 18th century literature. <laughs> Yeah, I remember when I when I did ever, ever read Evelina, I basically had we did an essay a week, uh, and I decided to do Fanny Burney. And my the comment from my tutor was, "You can't really write an essay on Fanny Burney based on one novel." I was like, "Well, I can't read more than one novel if, in a week when they're this long. Yeah. What, do you, what do you want from me? Pre- preparation, <laughs> possibly." <laughs> <laughs> so it's fair to say that I am dip- diving into other things. I've just finished the Poison Chocolates case by Anthony Barclay. Oh, I very much enjoyed that yeah, one. It's a good one, uh, British Library Crime Classics, which is um, it's basically lot. It's a d- detecting club where they each present a different solution to a murder, and I get I was convinced by most of them. In fact, the one yes. that yeah, the one that I thought it was, 
pops up like halfway through. I thought, oh, no, I was wrong, I guess. It's probably not going to... The Disney one probably doesn't come around the halfway mark. Um, but yeah, they, they, it's, it's one of the it's one of the better ones, I think. I think that's probably the one I've enjoyed the most out of that whole series, actually. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, he had an affair with Ian Delafield, apparently. Did he indeed? Yeah. Scandal. Go on, Ian Delafield. I, I mean, her husband did sound very boring from the yes. side of the lady, so I don't blame her to that. <laughs> that. Yeah, official moral stance of teal books. <laughs> if your husband's boring, have an affair. <laughs> oh dear. What are you reading? How are you doing? Um, I'm fine. I'm on half term, so I'm just chilling. I mean, that's just basically my life in general these days, isn't it? But yeah. um, I've I've actually been. I treated myself this month to some some books on eBay that I was just sort of thinking, oh, you know, because I'm reading through my shelves mm-hmm. and I'm a bit bored of my shelves. <laughs> so I thought, well, do you know what? I'm going to um, I'm going to treat myself to some sort of mid-century novels. So I went and had a little spree on eBay, got myself a few, and I've started working my way through them. So I read uh, the, half, the, half, the Half Crown House by Helen Ashton, um, who I knew is Persephone author. So Persephone republished Bricks and Mortar. Which is a novel about an architect. Very good. We did an episode on once, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Um, and so this one is about a. Fa- it's a really interesting premise. It's one day in the life of a family who are they. They are. It's set in the 1950s. It's contemporary to when it was written, and they have this stately home that's not particularly great, um, and they've got no money. And the the heir to the house arrives on that day. He's nine, because and the house is run by um, the twin of the the heir who died in the war. Um, and everything's falling apart at the house. There's a scary ancient grandmother who lives upstairs in her room and hates everyone, <laughs> um, and is sort of rotting away in her bedroom. And they have to open the house in order to try and make some money to have visitors around, which is why the novel's called The Half Crown House, because they charge everybody half a crown to come and look around. And the novel is set on the last day of their summer opening season. And it's as much about the house as it is about the the people. And it's just, I mean, you could tell that she was obviously very interested in architecture because she's the descriptions of all the different periods of the house. And she sort of tells the story of the people who've lived there through the way in which the house has evolved over time and it's and it's also very much about Henrietta who's the person who looks after the house at the moment and you know what she's going to do there's an American who's interested in her and wants to buy a painting and then it's just it's just really interesting it's a very interesting premise and I thought I don't know whether she'll be able to sustain this for the whole novel but she really did and I, I really enjoyed it and I'm quite surprised it's not been reprinted actually um so that, I mean, that could be one for your British Library Women writers, Simon. Yeah, I mean, I will say that as you have described it, I have literally just bought it. <laughs> that sounds so amazing. I mean, you would love it. <laughs> um, and I've got a beautiful copy of with a lovely dust jacket that's um, by Barbara Jones, actually. It's a very um, fantastic 20th century um, artist, so I really enjoyed that. Um, and then I've also just read, what did I just read? The I Foolish read Gentlewoman. A, the Foolish Gentlewoman. I read it in a day, so I was just like, oh, I've forgotten I did that, by Marjorie Sharp, which has just been reprinted by Dean Street Press. And I love Marjorie Sharp. You introduced me to her, Simon, so I'm very grateful for that. And it's about a woman who is 
widowed again it's just after the war so all these books are set in the kind of early 50s which is not a period I've really read much in actually so it's been quite nice to immerse myself and she owns a house and she her, she's recently widowed she's got this house that um was her childhood home she's got her brother-in-law he's the brother of her her dead husband is a very stick in the mud lawyer who thinks that she's an idiot and that she needs to sell the house and whatever but unfortunately for him his house has has been bomb damaged so he has to move in with her for a bit and they've got these all these other hangers on and basically the plot revolves around Isabel who's the foolish gentlewoman of the title he's supposed to be a bit simple uh, deciding she goes to church one Sunday which she never normally does here's a sermon that says I can't remember what the sermon's about but it's um, to do with it, it doesn't make it at time the, the passing of time doesn't make something you've done in the past better um, and she thinks about this she basically confesses to Simon that this girl that was living I mean this is a very complicated description <laughs> I'm, I'm making this a meal out of this um, this hanger on who was looking who used to stay with them when she, she and her sister were girls she basically stopped her from getting married to someone that could have made her life better and now she feels she has to make restitution and she decides that she's going to give her all her money so she invites her to stay but she's an absolute nightmare um and it's basically about how everyone else in the house tries to conspire to get rid of her it's very good it's very funny and witty but there's also a kind of pathos about it as well and i like the way she looks at the role of mm. single women and everything else but i mean her description her p- depiction of tilly who is this you know spinster who's had to make her own way in the world is, is pretty horrific, but I enjoyed it very much. Did I, t- I can't remember if I said when you messaged me the other day about who introduced me to that book. No. Which is P.G. Woodhouse. So I was reading some of his letters when I was 18 or 19, and he said The Foolish Gentlewoman was one of, was the best book he'd read recently. And I'd never heard of Marjorie Sharp at that point, but I thought, what if P.G. Woodhouse liked it? I'll give it a go. Yeah, that's one for me. Well, I mean, I highly recommend it. And Dean Street Press have just republished a lot of her mm. early novels that are quite hard to get hold of. So um, highly recommended to go and have a look at their website and read their descriptions because, I mean, she's just, if you've got an afternoon, well, all of us have got an afternoon at the yes. moment. We've all got an afternoon with nothing to do. Um, they are wonderful. They're kind of lighthearted, but they're very well written and very laugh out loud funny, some of the things the characters say. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I just bought up all the ones I didn't already own um, from those reprints. Are very great because, I mean, trying to get a hold of her first novel is impossible. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, she's so good at those, um, like, cuckoo in the nest sort of scenarios. Mm. Uh, like, Clooney Brown is similar and Gypsy in the Parlour is quite similar. In fact, yeah. those, those two we did. And, but she often uses it in quite, like, sometimes just really funny ways and sometimes quite disturbing ways. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, you say she's really funny, and she is, but some of them are just, yeah, sometimes the humour is turned off and it's just, <laughs> like Britannia Muse is just quite melancholy, but really good as well. I haven't read that one yet. It's on my shelf. I think you'd like that one. Excited. Anyway, first half. Yeah. Do we care what characters are called? I'm really hammering, I have to have to hang down, do we care what characters eat? Do we care what characters <laughs> wear? <laughs> and <laughs> I think every episode from now on should be, do we care what characters <laughs> <laughs> insert strange idea here yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we should change the name of the podcast um, do, do we care, and care <laughs> about characters uh, I, I can't remember what prompted this um, but I think I, we did that episode a while ago on, on <laughs> titles 
<laughs> simple or fancy, um, I, which, believe it or not, was another of my initiatives. Um, but, Shocking. And and it made me, I think it was, I've been thinking ever since then, because uh, some, some authors just go straight down the line, pick some ordinary names, and some, the name is very much either part of the character or part of um, their experience, I suppose. It defines them in some way other than just being a label. Mm. Uh, apparently, I was thinking, oh, I think what, actually what prompted it more recently, it was I was reading for my book group, Barbara Noble's The Reading Group, which I actually gave up on and thought was terrible. Um, <laughs> everyone else seemed to like it. And one of my problems was that every character in it, as well as having exactly the same speaking style, all had a sort of middle-class white woman's name, and I could not remember who was who. It's like, which one's Claire, which one's Sarah, which one's you know, Laura, all these sorts of things. Uh, they're all essentially all the same name. Um, probably Rachel, sorry. Um, <laughs> and and it was there, and that made me think, there's so many novels of the 1930s and around that time where the, where the heroine is called Laura or Elizabeth. Yes, it's so true actually, yes. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I guess it's sort of stand-in for, this is the middle-slash-upper-middle-class woman that you'll recognise. Her name is not important. It's just put her into a into a class um, or into a into a classification. Um, and on the other hand, you get people like the the name that always stays with me, Ignatius J. Riley, from A Confederacy of Dunces by John Jonathan Kennedy Tool. John Kennedy Tool, which I think is a wonderful, very funny novel. Also read for that same book group, in fact. But, um, mm. And where his name is very much part of who he is is you know ridiculous and absurd and over the top and you're never going to be introduced to a character called ignatius j riley who is very dull unless that's the joke of the novel i guess um so yeah, those are the spectrum ends of the spectrum i guess that came to me uh but uh when we were chatting before you said you had nothing to say for this but has, <laughs> has, has have you had come up with anything whilst i've been talking um, I mean, not really. I'm just trying to think of, of character names who I've who's sort of called out to me. I think I think you're right. There's a lot of the novels that that I read. I feel like there's not really a lot of thought put into the characters' names, and it, they've just been given a kind of generic and non-memorable name, really, mm. to kind of yeah, that doesn't really sort of symbolise very much. Um, but I think. I'm just trying to think of, of characters' names that have stuck out to me, and I can't really... I always remember reading, um, fresh in my mind, because I'm reading Rosamund Lehman at the moment, um, and the, is it a note in music, or it's another one? No, it's another one of her novels. Give me some Rosamund Lehman novel mm, titles. Weather in the Streets? No. Um, Invitation to the World? No. Uh, Sunflower? No, that's not her. Um... Oh, I can't think of any more off the top of my head. Right, hang on. Google's my friend. There's a character in one of her novels um, whose name is Ianthi, and I'd never read of a character called that before. With a Y at the beginning? No, I. I-A-N-T-H-E. And I think it's a Rosamund Lehman novel. It's going to turn out to be someone else's time. <laughs> the Ballad and the Source. There oh, that's that is by her, yes. And... Um, I remember thinking, God, what a beautiful name. And it's interesting because this, this character is a very challenging, a very uh, difficult, very, you know, just a, a very um, 
unconventional person and I thought that's a perfect name for somebody like that and she even though she's a very difficult person the fact that you know her name really I I found her her name beautiful as well and, and distinctive and it was like she was given that name by her mother because her mother wanted her to be special and, and interesting and distinctive. And there was something explored in that novel about the sense of, you know, do we, has she purposely become this way in order to live up to her name sort of thing, which I found really interesting. Um, and I've also had, you know, there's been characters in other novels. That, I mean, I can't think of specifics. My mind is just a, you know, a blur of um, a connections here that I can't quite make. But um, I blame coronavirus. <laughs> Which, should we clear, you don't have coronavirus. No. <laughs> Just the, the general yeah, yeah. fact I'm not really using my brain very much at the moment, um, of characters who have felt like their names were a burden to them. Um, and I remember reading a book once where I can't remember the actual book, but they had a um, a kind of virtue name and they always felt that they didn't live up to it. I mean, a, a character who does have a virtue name that I think is very good is Patience in um, the John Coates novel. Yes, um, good Patience, yeah. Yes, and I think that that's a really, that was a wonderful use of a virtue name because she is, does have to be patient in order for her life to change, but then at the same time, the fact that she's called Patience makes people think that she's very sweet and soft and nice and they treat her in that way and they don't ever give her the opportunity to be anything else, which is quite... Um, so that was a, an example of a name that I thought, oh yeah, he's actually used that as a plot point, which I don't feel like a huge amount of authors do. I feel like names are overlooked from a, you know, from a writing perspective. I don't think people, I mean, someone like, you know, Dickens, who was very good at coming up with ridiculous names for mm. people that emphasize their personality traits. I don't think that writers nowadays tend to do that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, Dickens was unsurprisingly one of the other names on my list with his, um, you know, I'm trying to think examples now, Uriah Heep, yeah. good one. Um, I mean, I guess Don't Do the Boys Hall is, is, a, is a school rather than a... Who, who's the, the schoolmaster there? That he had a good name. Hmm. Anyway, often yeah. they are just openly traits. And then I was yeah. thinking um, Trollope also does ridiculous names sometimes, and I don't like it when he does it because it doesn't fit the sort of tenor of the book no um like omicron pie you think well that would be great in a dickens novel because it's got that heightened uh like slightly ridiculous um humor to it whereas trollope is very naturalistic in his yes, characteristics yeah I do, I do always laugh at plantagenet pallister though oh. <laughs> that's a brilliant name but again used for that idea of the class system and somebody wanting to indicate their heritage and everything else so um i do see the sense in it but yeah dickens is i think the worst offender for ridiculousness um and but again created for ridiculousness yeah yeah and uh, wilkie collins does it a little bit as well his villains have always got ridiculous names yeah it'd be very easy to work out who's the villain just like yeah. who's got the upset name yeah <laughs> um of course, like last episode, I mentioned I was reading A Name to Conjure with by G.B. Stern, all about names, which looking back is perhaps where I got this idea from. I don't know. <laughs> um, and she she was a very prolific novelist. And there's a section she's writing in this thing about how people get in touch with her and say, you've used this name many times before. And she had always forgotten that she'd used quite strange names several times, family names or first names, which I enjoyed. And I also like when an author uses their own name in a book. 
I always think it's funny oh. that Jane Austen, her two characters called Jane, are just impossibly beautiful, good people. <laughs> it's like, well done, Jane. <laughs> Back yourself. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's interesting as well, though, that she uses a lot of the same character names in her books, and it. I mm. think for someone who's quite interested in names, it's interesting to think, oh, those must have been really popular names at the time, or, you know, that how many names did people use at that time? You know, because all women seem to just be called Elizabeth, Jane, and Mary. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like like Lydia, for example, feels like in Pride and Prejudice, it's a deliberately fancy name, and it's interesting that the mother gave that name because all the other girls have just got very boring, straight up names. Whereas Lydia feels a little bit more, I don't know, less traditional, a bit more daring, and yeah, then you've got yeah. frivolous name exactly. Um, and you know, you wonder maybe you know, has Lydia become that way because of her name? Ooh, nominative feminism. Mm. Um, that's a fun topic. I sometimes, when I worked at the Vodley and used to just open the Crockfords, which is the directory of clergymen, and look up people who had amusing names for clergymen, so like <laughs> Reverend Churchman. <laughs> but speaking of someone whose surname means twin and is a twin, I'm very much um, fulfilling my own name. Does your, does your surname, your name mean yeah, twin? Yeah, Thomas means twin. I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. so funny. Simon means snub-nosed, same. Oh, snub-nosed <laughs> twin. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Um, have you got anything more to say about this? I thought there might be more. more. I've got nothing to say. I mean, you know, it's not... I, I will say this again. This is not my choice of topic, people. <laughs> yes, but normally you come up with loads when you say that. I came up with a fair amount You of did things. come up with a fair amount. I've done well with that. <laughs> Bearing in mind, we decided this very late last night. I think that we've, yeah, um, yeah we've not done too badly. Um, do you care what characters are called? I mean, I don't know if I, if I massively do, but at the same time, I do find it interesting when it it's used for a purpose. So I would say yes. Yeah, I think I do. I think that it's, it's it depends on the style of the novel. Like, I don't want showy, silly names in every novel I read, but I think it can enhance. Um, things a lot, and um, yeah, I do get a bit excited, bit, bit tired of all the Lauras sometimes. Sorry if you're listening and you're called Laura. That's a very pretty name, though. Yes, in real life, Lauras are lovely. Yeah. Uh, in novels, they're usually lovely as well. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, great. Um, <laughs> look forward to what else we do or don't care about about characters in future episodes. I'm sure people can hardly wait. <laughs> Look, guys, if you've got suggestions for things we should do, tea or books at gmail.com, and then we won't have to do these sorts of things. <laughs> uh, and someone who did contact us at tea or books at gmail.com is Claire from the Britlick podcast, who has done, I've often said we, we accept questions in any format, audio mm -hmm. or written, probably not video, don't think that would work. Um, but Claire has taken us up on sending in an audio question. So over to you, Claire. Hi, this is Claire from the Britlet podcast. And I'm just calling because as well as being a podcaster, I'm also a writer and I'm thinking about a future book, which is going to be about friendship. And I was wondering if you know of really good books that deal with and explore friendships in the same kind of way that love affairs are dealt with in books. Um, so not necessarily about a psychopathic friend or something like that, of which there are definitely books like that, but more a kind of intense relationship between two friends that runs its course and in so doing maybe breaks 
one or both people's hearts um maybe something that lasts a lifetime or something brief and intense i just really love to hear about any books you know that feature friendship that way and then kind of related only related in my own head but related to the same potential project I was wondering if you knew of books like Jenny Offal's books who wrote Weather and Department of Speculation her books are kind of fragments and quotes it's kind of a very experiential sorry a very experimental way of writing and I know there's Chemistry by Waika Wang is kind of similar and I know that Sarah Croissant if that's how you say her name (laughs) writes in verse And I was just wondering if you know of other writers that maybe have a similar style, because I'd love to absorb as much as possible of that kind of style. Thank you very much. Look forward to hearing your answers. Uh, Thank you for that, Claire. This time, in contrast to the first half, I sent this to Rachel in advance. (gasps) Rachel had time to prepare. I did. It's it's never happened for this middle section before. Well, I mean, it doesn't mean that it's going to be any better a response than normal. I don't want you to set up expectations. Um, but I do have some ideas. Excellent. Uh, should we do the first bit first, a bit about friendship? Yes. So, I mean, the first thing I thought of, I mean, I haven't read them, but and I'm sure that everyone would say this is those Elena Ferranti novels about um, my beautiful friend, my, my beautiful friend, etc. My brilliant friend. My brilliant friend. Oh, um, have you read them? I read the first one. Um, is it my brilliant friend? I'm now having a brain freeze. No, it is my brilliant friend. No, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't like it. And I know that everyone else does. I think partly because novels about children tend to, I tend to find quite boring. And the, in the first one, she's a child the whole time. And there's also oh. more about like gang violence than I was expecting. Right. But, but I think as the series goes on, it is it does fulfill much more what, what Claire was mentioning. Yeah. Okay. Um, my One of my favourite books of all time is Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner. Oh yes. Which is all about the friendship between um two married couples as they go from their twenties through to the present of the novel when they're um in their sixties and or maybe even seventies. And it's just the most wonderful exploration of friendship really and what and how friendships change during your life and how friendships can be challenged by circumstances and how, you know, I think what's also really interesting is the exploration of friendships between couples and who keeps those relationships together. So there's a really interesting discussion. It's one of the one of the female members of the there's two heterosexual couples and one of the women is dying and the the husband of the other woman is, is thinking, you know, well, will I carry on being friends with the husband mm-hmm. if I don't have, you know, if we don't have the wife there and it's it's really interesting to, and it's just a wonderful, really wonderful and very moving. And I think it's one of the best books I've ever read about relationships. Um, and it's quite rare. I was thinking actually when I was, um, I listened to the question, I thought, you know, so many books are so focused on romantic relationships mm-hmm. and friendships don't ever really get given, I think, the, the power that they actually do have in reality of life. Because, I mean, most of us have more friendships than we do romantic relationships mm. or meaningful romantic relationships anyway. And it's like, why don't, why do we focus so much attention on romantic relationships when for the vast majority of people, we have m- the, the most significant relationships and the most um, numerous relationships we have in our lives are with our friends. Um, and then I was thinking about friendships in books I've seen. And I started to think, do you know what? I've, I've read a lot of books where friendships 
are about deception and about uh, cruelty and that sort of thing. So I was thinking about Patricia Highsmith um, and the talented Mr. Ripley, where you've got that obsessive relationship between um, Tom and what's his name? I've uh, never read it, actually. Oh, haven't you? Um, Dickie, Tom and Dickie. And that is kind of, you know, the, the using of each other, which is, is really interesting. And then there's also that depiction in Carol as well, uh, which is called something different in America, but I can't remember. Mm, something about salt. Yes, something about salt, yes. Patricia Highsmith again, so that ends up being a romantic relationship, but it starts out as being a kind of a friendship of an older woman with a younger woman and thinking again about the power relationships involved in that, which I found really interesting. Um, and a novel, I think a couple of novels that are about really positive female friendship um this is a young young adult novel but it it can be read by adults it's much more sophisticated than than most in that genre which is codename verity by elizabeth wine i don't know if you've read it i've not heard of it no but it's absolutely wonderful it's set during world war ii and it's about uh two girls who are working in the ats so they um they fly the planes from air bases they deliver planes to air bases it was quite a small group of women who did it and it's about they're both from completely different backgrounds so one of the girls is um from uh she grew up in a scottish castle she's an aristocrat and the other one is working class and it's just about this incredible bond that they develop and it's just the most beautiful story and you know heartbreaking but wonderful at the same time and that's just a lovely lovely exploration of the power of female friendship um, and there's also a Coming Home by Rosamund Pilcher, which is one of my guilty pleasures. <laughs> um, wonderful novel and about the relationship between, again, two people from very different backgrounds and who have a lifelong friendship, two women, um, which I, I loved. And then for a slightly darker look at friendship, I love The Secret History by Donna Tartt. Mm. looking at how have you read that you must have yeah, done yeah, yeah. and looking at how friendships can or the desire for friendships the desire to fit in the desire to be accepted can can lead to quite dangerous outcomes yes yeah see what happens when rachel gets time to repair i know I've got so many things. you're right though it's um i found it quite hard to think of many books about friendships particularly in comparison to about romantic relationships and which is odd, not least, not only because it happens more often, but because I'd be much more drawn to reading books about friendship. Because I love reading books about siblings, um, and there's quite a lot of those, I guess. But yeah, it's that gap between. Uh, and so when I came up with my, I came up with three suggestions, and two of those are about trios of friends where there is an element, at least, of sexual tension, or you know, one of the you know unre in, unreciprocated romantic love etc but generally still about friends which were uh, molly fox's birthday by deirdre madden oh yes i love that book it's a wonderful wonderful book that we i think we've, we have talked about doing madden at some point but um that's it's all narrated by this theater director who has had this long friendship with both molly fox an actor and another another man and there's been sort of various different um strengths and weaknesses to those friendships as they if they've waxed and waned over the years but it's mostly about the friendship between molly fox and the narrator whose name i can't remember are the are the main uh, elements to that um and that's really good on a really long friendship and 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 the sort of minutiae of how how uh, friendship can change 
Um, and the other one in that category was A Home at the End of the World by Michael Cunningham. Mm. If you've read read that no, one. No, I haven't. It's really good. It's um, It starts off with two schoolboys who are good, really good friends, and one of them is quite attracted to the other one. Uh, as they grow up, there's a, a, a woman who becomes friends with them as well. One of them's going to have a baby with her. The other one falls in love with her. Um, so, yeah, it's... It's a, it's a it's a complex friendship, but but it is mostly about friendship. And I think he's really good at groups of friends. The Snow Queen is, is similarly about a, there are married couples and siblings in that group, but it is mostly about the dynamics of a friendship group. Um, and then the one I came up with is just two friends is uh, Sex Education by Yanni Visman, who was a really good author. She only wrote or at least only published two novels: Yellow, which is about agoraphobia, and Sex Education, which is about um, to women's friendship when it just turns slightly toxic and got jealousy, I guess. Um, sorry, I'm trying to keep talking whilst Hargreaves settles on my lap, <laughs> <laughs> getting between me and the microphone. Here we are. Um, yeah, there's, but I really like your suggestions. It's a nice sort of range of types of friendship novel, but there's, yeah, so many children's books are obviously about friendship. It's a shame that there aren't more um, for adults. Would love to hear more suggestions from people. Yeah, I would. So, I mean, I, I love reading books about friendship, but it's so hard to find them without one of them turning out to be a nutter who wants to kill the other one. Yes, yeah. <laughs> As Claire mentioned, yes, we don't want necessarily always a psychotic friendship. There must be others out there, I'm sure. We've probably discussed some of them. but um, uh, The second half, I had never heard of these books and authors, but you have. Yeah. So maybe you have better idea what what Claire was asking about than I do. Well, I mean, what she's talking about is sort of experimental novelistic structures where you're looking at um, kind of non-standard prose or you're looking at sort of verse novels. So verse novels have become very popular of late, I've noticed, particularly with young adult fiction. It's a real trend. Um, So she mentions Sarah Crossan, for example, who writes all of her books in, in verse and kids love it because you know it takes half the time to read um, <laughs> but also it's it's an interesting way of writing because it changes the rhythm and it changes the voice of the character and i, I quite enjoy that so um girl woman other by bernardine Evaristo, which won the book prize was it last year before last who knows time, <laughs> and yes, time, which we discussed back- um, in the last episode yes um that's written in inverse and it's which you didn't realize because you listened to it Um, exactly yeah yeah but it's so that's and it it did did give a completely different rhythm to the to the way in which i read it and the voices of the characters so um another author that um you might wish to try is elizabeth acevedo who is another young adult writer who does um really good so really good books in 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 verse so her first one I don't know if it's her first one, but the first one that sort of came to prominence was The Poet X, which I want to say won the Carnegie Prize. And then um, she's currently got one nominated in the long list for the Carnegie for this year, which I've just read, uh, which is called Clap When You Land, which is really interesting. It's written um, about, I don't know if you remember this, because nobody does, which is the whole point of the book. Just after um, the Twin Towers bombing, there was a plane that went down um, over queens 
Uh, no, I don't remember. Yeah, there was a. It just something went wrong with the engine and it crashed. And originally they thought it was uh, terrorism again, but it wasn't. And then because of everything else that was going on, it just sort of got brushed. When they realised it wasn't terrorism, it just got brushed mm. past it. I think there was also probably a slightly racist element about it as well, because it was a plane going to the Dominican Republic full of people, because uh, from that area of mm-hmm. New York, who are from the Dominican Republic or work between the two. And say the vast majority of people who died were people from the Dominican Republic. And say Elizabeth Acevedo, who is um, from a Dominican Republic background herself, um, found that fascinating. So she does. It's the story of two girls who um, they don't realise that they're sisters. One of them lives in the Dominican Republic. One of them lives in New York. Are the same age. Their father dies in the crash, and he's had secret families. Oh wow! One in New York. One in Dominican Republic. And it, the story is about those girls coming to terms with their grief, but also then finding out that the other one exists because the families know that those girls exist, but they've never actually told the girls. That. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, and it's told in um, alternate, each chapter is an alternative voice from the girls and it's written in um, verse and it's, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. So I've, that's, that, that would be a really good recommendation. Um, I really enjoyed it. And also, Max Porter's novels are very experimental, and I really enjoy them. I don't know if you've read any of his. No, so, Grief is the Thing with Feathers and uh, Lanny, which are fantastic. And again, snippets of prose, snippets of verse, very interesting writing style, very non-standard, very looks very non-standard on the page, uh, kind of concrete poetry, that kind of thing. So I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but... Once you're into it and you've, you're past that, it's fantastic. I've absolutely, I mean, both of his novels, I just think, are absolutely brilliant. Because, mm. yeah, because I didn't know what these books were, I was, I think I thought slightly differently. Yeah, that sort of, like, collage types. Like, I, know I thought thought of Vanessa and Her Sister by um, Priya Palmer about Vanessa Bell and Virginia Woolf, which is partly praise, but also partly people's letters and, and all that sort of thing. Um, collage together, and then I have read I read one novel in verse, the Persephone or one of the Persephone ones, and I can't remember now which what it's called or who wrote it. Can you remember who, the novel novel in verse? Yeah, I know which one you mean, but I've never read it, and I remember reading the description and thinking, oh no, that doesn't sound like. <laughs> I liked it, um, but I don't know that I thought the fact that it was in verse made it any better. Um, I'll look that up, uh, and I just read. Um, Thank, oh, Hello Friend, We Missed You by Richard Owen Roberts that won the Not the Booker Prize, which I don't know if it quite counts, but it's very fragmented prose and it's lots of um, repeated internal thoughts. I was very underwhelmed by it. So maybe that's not a great recommendation, but my book group did it, the same book group I've mentioned uh, now that uh, earlier, which um, two people really loved it and other people were a bit lukewarm. And obviously it won... The not the Booker Prize, so I guess. Um... Well, I mean, I think there's an element with these things of of what are you looking for, and that's always the debate, isn't it? The, that kind of style of substance. Are you looking for something that's experimentally written and interesting, and that challenges the boundaries, or are you looking for something that's an enjoyable read, that's a fantastic story with great characters that you can't put down. And I often find, I'm not saying this is always true, but I often find the two are mutually exclusive. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing that the modernists were trying to work with, wasn't it? It's like, how yeah. 
fluid compose be before it becomes unreadable. unreadable. Yeah. Um, Let Us Delma by Susan Miles was the first novel I was oh, yes. trying to think of. Um, I think all about it's all about faith in some way, but I can't remember quite how. Um, yeah. Obviously, had a powerful effect on you. <laughs> really bad. Well, it was maybe twenty. It was not twenty years ago. Fifteen years ago, I read it. Maybe. Um, and I mean, I, I struggle to remember things I read this week. So. Wow, old age is catching up with faith, isn't it? Just. Well, Claire, thanks so much for your questions. Mm. I hope uh, you got some so interesting things there. And if you've been inspired to send an audio or indeed non-audio question, you do send that into teaorbooks at gmail.com. Most phones will have an audio recording function if you are worried about how to do that. So you should be fine if you want to give that a go. Um, and now on to two books by Tiv Jensen. Uh, would you like to, inter- to introduce us to one of your choice? Yes, I'll go with um, the summer book if you don't mind. Sure, I'll go for it. Uh, so this is a book I've read several times because I teach it, and um, mm-hmm. it is set on the tiny, tiny, tiny island that Tobi Anson herself owned in the, um, I think it's in Finland, isn't it? The Finland, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, can't, I never know how to say this word. Archipelago, is that how you say it? Um, archipelago? Archipelago. That's how I would say it. I but... avoid saying it all the time. <laughs> I, think, I don't know how to say that word. Um, and it's about the story of grandmother and so- Sophia, who spend every summer on this island together. Sophia is quite small at the beginning of the novel, but she gets gradually older. And it's just a very slow description of days and experiences in the lives of these two as they spend their summers on, on the island. And it's an exploration of their relationship both with each other but also with their landscape and the, the the very unique challenges of living on an island yeah yeah uh, and a winter book as we mentioned at the end of the last episode is basically called a winter book to try and sell it to people who love the summer book because <laughs> a lot of it's not in winter uh, it's selections from various different short story collections um five different short story collections i guess. I think so it's hard to summarize it but um some of them are very autobiographical from a collection she did called the sculptor's daughter others are not uh, but some of them take place on islands as well some of them are in cities they're all i guess um looking at it's the sort of stories that look at small moments sometimes more surreal than others um so you might get you've got a woman who strikes up a relationship with a squirrel, not a relationship, <laughs> but the only, only creature she sees is a squirrel. There's someone who is, um, in the opening story, rolling a, a ball of stone home because she thinks there's silver in it. And then there's things that are much more just about parental relationships as a child looking at a sculptor and trying to um, understand the world better, I guess. Um, yeah, interestingly, so all of the, all her work was originally published in Swedish, the summer book was translated by Thomas Teal, who is the main translator of her work. Um, a, a winter book, interestingly, is uh, translated by three different people because they come from different collections. Um, let's find the names. Um, Sylvester Mazzarella, David Macduff, and Kingsley Hart. And I once interviewed Sylvester Mazzarella for Shiny New Books oh. um, when he he translated a biography of uh, T.F. Janssen by... Um, Mm. No, I can't remember. There were two published the same year. He did one of them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I 
Sorry, Sylvester, I did try to interview Thomas Teal first and he said no, but uh, but Sylvester was very, very interesting <laughs> to speak no. to. He said no, how rude. No. He's, I just went to hear him talk once, and that was, gosh, maybe 10 years ago, and he already looked about 90 then, so... Oh, right, bless well, him. Maybe, Probably yeah, so I don't think too much really for him. Yeah, in fact, I hope he's still alive. He's, he, and <laughs> it's interesting reading um, a collection translated by different people, and try, it doesn't tell you... No, sorry, it does tell you at the beginning who's translated what, which I didn't look at, but... Um, interesting to see if you can work out who is translated what or what the differences might be. Um, when did you first read these books? Um, well, I mean, a, a winter book I read just for this, so mm. literally a couple of weeks ago. Summer book I read a couple of years ago. I mean, I knew that you loved it. Mm. Um, I didn't really know anything about... Um, her uh, beyond the moomins and i don't really read translated fiction so i wasn't really into it but then i started teaching the international baccalaureate and i had to find four translated books to teach my kids um and i thought you know what let's have a look at this the summer book not knowing what to expect at all really um because i've never actually read the moomins i've only seen the cartoons mm -hmm. and i was just blown away by how beautiful the writing was and the the setting and yeah, that kind of Scandinavianness of it, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, what's really interesting is that having taught it and having had to pick it apart, the more I've taught it twice now, and um, it's just so amazing how nothing happens, but so much happens. And what she explores about um, the relationship between Sophia and the grandmother and what it means to grow older um, and the vulnerability of the grandmother, but also the playfulness of the grandmother. And the fact that these are autobiographical, so the grandmother is based on Tavi Anson's own mother and Sophia is her niece. Um, and we talked a lot about that kind of female, French, the female kind of um, matriarchal relationship that they have. Because the, the father is there, he's on the island too, but he's always working. Um, he's always inside the house, he's always at his desk, he always can't be disturbed. And you got the sense that these women are, you know, the grandmother is, and her mother's dead, Sophia's mother is dead. She she just dies in a sentence at the beginning of the book, mm, it's never mentioned yeah. again, and we talk about that a lot in class, thinking about why that is. And um, and but what another thing that we really love and we discuss a lot in when we talk about it in class is the discussion of the environment and the precarious nature of living on the island and how important it is to preserve the island and preserve the traditions and the um the understanding of the natural environment so like for example they they talk about the moss and what the moss is used for and how we do this and how we shouldn't tread on this and how we shouldn't pick that and then you have uh, the depiction of people who are slowly buying up the islands and building holiday homes, who don't care about the environment, who don't understand how things are done, who don't follow the customs of, of things. So like they look, the, there's a guy who builds a house on the following island that blocks their view. And he also locks the door, which is, which is like a thing mm -hmm. you don't do because if they, everybody on the island who's lived there for a long time and who's, who, feels that they belong there I suppose in a way that these outsiders don't um know that they have to leave their doors open in case any it, when they're not living there um 
in case anybody uh, gets into trouble on their boat and they need to wash up on an island and they need somewhere to stay. Um, and all of that is understood. And it's really interesting looking at it from that perspective. I mean, you can just read it as this beautiful sort of summary read and you can lie down and imagine yourself on this beautiful island in the sea and whatever. But once you dig beneath the surface, there's actually a lot going on there talking about you know, modernity and the environmental impact. I mean, the, the last chapter in particular is really powerful where she talks about the, the oil tankers out in the water and the slick on the on the surface. And what she's really exploring in this book is, is, is the sort of vanishing um, idyll, really, that is being taken over by people who are, you know, using it for their own pleasure rather than thinking to preserve what is really a very precarious um, environment. So... There's lots going on, and I I absolutely love 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 it. I think the writing is amazing. I don't know how much of the writing is the translating. I mean, that's always my problem with translated texts. I'm like, am I reading the tell the answer? Mm-hmm. Am I reading the translated? But it's just, I think, an incredibly beautiful, immersive, very sensory book. But it's also one that's got a lot of emotion behind it and a lot of things to think about in terms of what are our responsibilities to the environment. How much longer can environments like this last for? So on and so forth. I've talked a lot. Sorry. <laughs> well, so, yes, but very beautifully. I enjoyed that a lot. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think because if you say to someone, "This is a book about a grandmother and a granddaughter uh, on an island," it sounds like it might be quite fey. Or you know, it's what, what her writing in this book and in all her books is just completely unsentimental, and I think that's what makes it really work. In that it's very beautiful. Um, and atmospheric and it, and it's a lot of um yeah very moving sections but there's never anything sentimental and the grandmother is very blunt at times the fact that you're told about that her mother's about the mother's death so quickly sort of jolts you out of what you might think the book is going to be um and yeah as you say i really love the nuanced uh depiction of that friend of yeah basically a friendship between a grandmother and granddaughter which you're seeing through the eyes of a child, most it's not first person narrator, but it's um, but it's you're you're sort of left to find the depth between the lines, as it were. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I read the summer book in two thousand and six, maybe, and the winter book a couple of years after that, and I've reread the summer book a few times, but this is the first time I've reread uh, a winter book since then. Um, and I think um what you're saying about the translation, you're never quite sure is it when you have an author who's translated by different people and it's still beautiful, you mm. think, well, there must be something there in the original. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I just wanted to read one line, in fact, from the iceberg, which I think is very um, re- reflective of her. So they see this iceberg and then the first page it says, now it all depended on whether anyone said anything. If they said a single word about the iceberg, it wouldn't be mine any longer. And, so she doesn't use, or at least in the translation, there's not, you know, showy words. But I think things like that just really capture a depth of idiosyncratic personality. Uh, and it's it's a sort of, it doesn't really make any mean it make any sense if you think about it. But it's exactly the sort of emotion one might have. You think that's I've seen something special. And I want to keep it to myself. Um, and yet that tells you everything you need to know about that character in that moment, what, what she's observing, what she's feeling, how she, how she responds to the world around her and to the people around her. Um, and I think both books are full of that sort of thing, Yeah. which as you say, not, not that much happening in most of them, some of them a bit more. Um, but 
uh, yeah, I think the books, the stories in a winter book that I liked best were those that were not that filled with people, but were more about the relationship between someone and the environment, or maybe a couple of other people interjecting. So the ones that were more about family life, I enjoyed, but I preferred the ones where it was, say, just rolling that stone home. Yes. It was wonderful. The, the squirrel, I think, is maybe my favourite, which is a woman alone on an island who starts having this... It's very hard to describe the relationship between her and the squirrel because it's not a friendship. It's more just <laughs> a codependency, I guess. Yeah. Um, and that, that that story is quite dramatic and quite darkly funny at times. But, um, it's one of the longest stories in the collection as well, and I think a really, uh, a really wonderful p- depiction of eccentricity and yeah I yeah i think i really enjoyed the stories right at the beginning that were very much based around her childhood and i could read the autobiography in them um and i felt i i love that and i but the story that really stuck out to me in the collection was traveling light mm. which i just loved i don't know why i loved it um i just loved the fact that they just got in a boat and went um and i just thought it was brilliant uh, but I thought, I mean, I was a bit disappointed because obviously I was expecting the summer book to just set in the winter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and realizing it was these, it was stories that were loosely connected, but not in any way. Like the, uh, we, uh, the summer book is, is a novel, you know, though we do discuss a lot in class. Is it a novel or is it short stories that are connected by theme? Um, we just always decide in the end that it is a novel because it does have a story arc. Uh, but you know, this is the joy of my lessons. You can imagine how rambling um, they <laughs> my general just blah. We just lie on the floor and talk. That's what we do. Um, <laughs> we're doing a lot of that. We're doing. We're currently actually doing Swedish existential poetry Good uh, by Thomas Transtromer. Um And we, well, when we were at school, we were just lying on the floor with our eyes shut and listening to it, and it was beautiful. Um, Don't worry, UK taxpayer, you're yeah. not contributing to this private school. No, so it's fine. <laughs> and then we went down to the art room and painted pictures of what we saw in our minds. Um, How glorious. Yeah. I just, you know, this is my attempt to resist the machine. Uh, <laughs> education. We will just be creative and have fun. Um, we obviously do do more important things than that. Um, um, well, not, but that, you know, that's, as we always, I always say to them, it's part of the process. It's the imaginative process. And it's part of how we connect to literature. But anyway, um, you know, I love that kind of poetic way in which she writes and the way that she strings ideas and thoughts mm. together and impressions. Um, I find it's very impressionistic, her writing, and mm-hmm. very... Uh, she's very good at creating an essence of a place without necessarily needing to put it into words. She's very sensory. Like it's not just, oh, this is what the sunset looks like. You can almost touch the sunset. You can smell. Um, you know, you're just fully immersed in in what she's describing. And the thing is, it's kind of something that I think I find really powerful about what she writes about in both books really is the very specific challenges of living in Scandinavia and think and she really writes about the kind of the weather conditions the um the the kind of the light that they have there um but also the challenges of living in a very watery environment where you know you 
are and also being cut off from people a lot of the time and having to be very self-reliant and all of that is embedded within the stories yeah it's like like as I think she doesn't have a sentimental view of family relationships she doesn't have a sentimental view of nature it's a very practical understanding of nature yeah. the same there's also a romance to it but it is a, a romance that's seated in in practicality and I think she all her often her characters are quite um, dismissive of people who only see the, uh, the landscape as beautiful, but perhaps more there's a novel called Fair Play, which is much more that sort of thing. But um, yeah, her characters always know exactly how nature behaves and how how they fit alongside it. Yeah, no, exactly, and I I love that kind of exploration of what it means to to live in harmony with nature and mm-hmm. to respect nature and have nature be such an important element of your life because where the environment that she's lived in and particularly Tovey Hansen spent most of the her adulthood really living pretty much full-time on that island in the end um mm. you know thinking about how you've got to work with nature and you can't just impose yourself on it and that's what she she you know she looks at particularly in the summer book with these people building these huge monolith houses and they don't understand how to get rid of their rubbish and they don't understand you know how to um one of them the guy doesn't know how to build a jetty properly and things like that like they have no knowledge they just think oh that's nice i want to go live there and have a nice view without thinking oh actually what impact does this have on the environment how does this affect other people and so on and so forth so i think she's got she has a real I think she she had a real early actually feel for the importance of the environment and for protecting it um, and for working alongside it and you know it's interesting and I you know I we talk about it a lot in class like is this a Scandinavian thing um, because I mean we've just done loads of Scandinavian literature I don't know what happened we just had an obsession with it um, and thinking about you know is this does this come from living in that kind of environment? Would we find that in novels from England from that period? Would we find it from novels from other countries? I don't know if we would. So, um, but I mean, for me, the the slight disappointment with the winter book is that I wanted it to. I felt like Toby Jansen hadn't put those stories together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it felt a bit forced in places. And there were some sections of the book that I felt worked together, but then others that didn't, and it felt a bit disjointed. I didn't feel like I had that immersive experience. Yeah, towards the end, uh, there's those um, fragmentary stories or stories in letters. Yeah. I really really liked, I can't remember what it was called, but the one that's just letters from a... A fan from Japan. Yeah. Uh, that um, you can sort of sense what Janssen's letters are in response because they're written to Janssen. I don't know if they're real letters, or whatever, I assume not, but they are written as though to tell Janssen rather than to a fictional character. Um, and I really liked them, but they're, they're very different from, yeah. as you say, from what goes before. Uh, and yeah, it's basically a, a best of, but I think her books, her short story collections work best when they are. You know, as she intended them to be yeah well yes and I just I don't what I don't understand is I felt I felt a bit like you know the the publisher I think short books published it uh, sort of books. sort of books sorry um I was like you know I understand why you've done this because you're relying on people having read a summer book and enjoying it the summer book and enjoying it but the reality is, if you just have said selected short stories of Tolly Anson, people would have still bought it. But instead, I'm buying it thinking I'm going to get the summer book again. 
that's set during winter and I'm, I'm getting something completely different and therefore I'm disappointed before I even start, you know. <laughs> um, and I just think actually I would have rather it just being marketed as selected short stories rather than trying to tie it together under the theme of winter and everything else because it just doesn't, it didn't work for me in that sense. The writing's fantastic, the stories are fantastic, but in that compendium, I don't think it quite works in, as trying to force that connection, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I suspect it probably did sell better than it would have done otherwise, yeah. who knows. But, um, and they have actually republished all the short story collections, I think, or maybe there's one or two left, um, separately as well. Yeah, so. I think um, since those have come out, there's been obviously a big interest and they've been all been translated and brought out. I think most of her books are available now because when certainly my edition of the summer book, which I bought secondhand, so it's quite old, um, from when it was first published mm. in the early 2000s, it said this is the only translated book in English of Tove Janssen's. So I was like, oh, right, yeah. okay, there really isn't anything there's a thing we're just longing for Thomas Teal to translate more. I just remember being at that event, being like, Thomas, what are you doing doing events? Go and, go and translate. Just get busy. Because <laughs> she's written, I mean, I've read quite a lot of hers now. Um, and, you know, they're all excellent. And it seems to be that I think all of her books are now available in English. I could be wrong, but... Well, there's a novel called Sun City that I have not read because I've been saving it. And that was translated in the 70s, I think, 80s maybe. And I've... And it's really hard to get hold of. Um, I did spend too much money on it. Uh, and for some reason, I guessing, I'm guessing around copyright issues, sort of haven't done that novel. Ah. But, um, but everything else, I think, is available now. So, no excuses, everyone. Yeah. And I think my favourite, um, before we get to this pair, it might be The True Deceiver. Yes, which, it's so good. Which is much darker setup mm. than most for other books. It's about um, in this community where this very... Um, sort of charmless woman breaks into the house of an illust children's illustrator uh, and they then form a sort of dependent relationship and it's really interesting as you know who is manipulating who is not I say dark there's a lot it's not that there's a lot of books that are darker but, but for Janssen it's quite dark yeah um, and it's more more about uh, the lies that people tell in friendships I guess which um it's also really interesting to see the perspective of somebody who is a children's illustrator who wishes that she weren't. Which, you know, how autobiographical is it? Who knows? Yeah. But, um, that's a really brilliant book. Yeah, I love that too. Uh, but from these two, which were you going to go with? I think I would have to go with some book, the summer book. And I just think it's wonderful. And if people haven't read it, then you absolutely must. It's just wonderful. Yeah. When I read. A winter book originally it, it, I preferred it and I think possibly it's because I read it on holiday in Cornwall by the sea <laughs> it was the <laughs> place to read it because rereading it now I still liked it but I do I'm going to join you and I prefer the summer book um it's just it's just a perfect little little gem it is lovely lovely um Rachel I did we conclude what we're doing in the next episode yes go for it what are we doing um, so we're going to do um, Dusty Answer by Rosamund Lehman versus Frosted May by Antonia White as well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and yes, we're yet to know whether I'm actually going to finish Dusty <laughs> Answer. Um, but uh, no, I'm, I'm going to persevere because I'm already halfway through and I feel like, well, you know, it's beautifully written, I will say. 
very beautiful. So we're going to look at these. They both look at, they're both sort of coming-of-age novels, aren't they? So that's what we're going to be looking at from a very similar period. Lovely. Yeah. Uh, you can see a list of all the books and authors you mentioned at stuckinabook.com. You can find Rachel at books.snarf.wordpress.com. And as I said, do get in touch at t or books at gmail.com if you have uh, suggestions for topics or questions for the middle section. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.